chapter 7. Now we get into, we're leaving the how you're supposed to act in the land. Now we're getting into driving out the previous occupants. So in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, When Yahweh your God brings you to the land that you are going to occupy and forces out many nations before you, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you, and he delivers them over to you, and you attack them, you must utterly annihilate them. Notice where this also begins too. When you read Joshua, they fight a lot of battles. But here God says, when God brings you to the land and he drives them out before you and he conquers them and he hands them over into your hands. He makes it very clear that no matter how much sweat and blood you put into these wars, it is God who brought you the land, God who delivered the enemy into your hands, God is giving you victory. And we've seen that already. When they went and said, we don't take, we can't take the land in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And they distrusted God. So God said, okay, you're not going to go in the land. You're going to die in this wilderness. And they're like, oh, no, no, never mind. We can take the land. And when they tried to take the land, they couldn't do it because God wasn't with them. So he makes it very clear that he's the one who's doing this. And that's important too because that changes the way that you think of this war. This isn't a people group going into another land and conquering a different people to take their land. That's the first thing you must understand about this. This is drastically different than any war that we've ever seen in the history of mankind. Every single war has been about resources and land that we want or somebody wants. This is about God taking the land. God defeating the enemy. And that's important. So he says, you must completely annihilate them all. Now that's hard. I'll come back to that. Let me just finish this paragraph. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh will erupt against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Instead, this is what you must do to them. You must tear down their altars, shatter their sacred pillars, cut down their sacred Asherah poles, and burn up their idols. For you are a people holy, absolutely unique in belonging to God, to Yahweh your God. He has chosen you to be his people, prized above all others on the face of the earth. We're going to deal with this a lot more in Joshua. Now, I know I keep saying that, but when we get there, I promise you we will deal with this. But for right now, I'm just going to kind of give you the little summary on it. What do we do with this God who pronounces the total annihilation of all the Canaanites? It seems to go contrary to the God, the loving God of character. We don't know exactly what this word annihilate means. Now, we know what the word annihilate means, but is it absolutely literal or is it a metaphorical hyperbole, an exaggeration? The reason we don't know exactly what this word means in, as far as like literal or hyperbolic is because they never literally obeyed this command. So we can't see a 
command and obedience to even know whether God is like, well done or not. So it's hard to know if they don't ever do it literally, then was it meant to be taken literally? Now, I'm not going to answer that question now. I'm going to wait till Joshua. So that'll make you come back. The reality is, but it also could be hyperbolic because here's the thing. He says you're not allowed to intermarry with them. You're completely destroy them. However, when before they even conquer any city, when they actually get to the book of Joshua, they encounter Rahab. And Rahab is a Canaanite. And do they completely annihilate her? And do they intermarry with her? Yes, because she becomes in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Yet God never condemns that. And God actually ends up praising it and lifting it up, and it becomes an example in the prophets and stuff. So, what do you do with this? You seem to have a God who gives a really absolute commands, annihilate, wipe them out, leave no survivors. He'll say stuff like this over and over again. Yet, when they don't in disobedience, he is angry with them and makes that clear. But when they don't because people come to God in faith, he doesn't seem to have anything wrong with that. In fact, the woman, there's a woman who later comes to Jesus and wants to be saved in the Gospels, and Jesus saves her, and she's a Canaanite woman. And only then, when you get to the prophets and you get to Revelation, we're specifically told that the Canaanites are invited into the kingdom of God. Well, how can God invite them into the kingdom of God when he gave them a command to completely annihilate them all? Don't you think God would say, well, because they didn't do it, I'm going to annihilate them now. Now, here's the difficult thing. Remember, the law says a lot of things. But there's one thing that always trumps the law. And that's faith and repentance. And I know that sounds so, like, bad to say that. But remember, did not Israel deserve to be completely wiped out when they worshipped the golden calf and violated the covenant? But what exempted them from the punishment of the law? Faith and repentance. Was not David supposed to be executed on the spot for raping a woman and murdering the husband? Yet God allowed him to live because of faith and repentance. Are you not supposed to be completely annihilated and destroyed for your sin? But you're allowed to live because of your faith and repentance. There seems to be, and I can give you an example after, and we can just keep going on and on in the Bible. This is over and over again. There seems to be this case where God expects you to be completely obedient to him and he will deliver harsh punishments, but a love for God demonstrated through action tends to grave the waters a little bit. And there seems to be a sense that anybody who comes to faith in God is now exempt from these. Because in some ways, if they put their faith in God, are they any longer a Canaanite? Not really. And this is a big message throughout the Bible, is that those who put their faith in God cease to be the people that they once were and now become the people of God. You need to keep that in mind when you deal with that. Because when you deal with conquest of other people over other people throughout history, you don't see faith and repentance exempting them from annihilation.
when you look at things that were done to the American Indians, when you look at what Japan did to China, when you look at what the Hutsis did to Tutsis, when you look at the Hitler and, and you look at the imperialism and the colonialism of Britain, faith and repentance did not stop those war machines because what they wanted was resources. But this war machine of God, the wrath of God, can always be turned away through faith and repentance. And you need to understand that that drastically makes God so different than all those other religions and all those other wars that we point to history and say, see, how can you condone this, but then you condemn those over there? Well, that's one way they're completely different. They're completely different. And we'll talk about this more. I'm just kind of giving you a taste. Um, but when we get to Joshua, we're going to pack this a lot because Joshua is where we start seeing come out and becomes a lot more difficult. So the first thing that you need to understand about this is, one, this is about evil. The Canaanites were incredibly evil. This is never about a land grab. Now, I know it sounds like it's a land grab when God says, I'm going to give you the land after you defeat them. And that sounds very land grab-like. But the reality is, who created the land? God. Who has the right to put anybody in the land that he wants? God. Who has the right to take anybody out of the land that he wants? God. And could God give them any land that he wanted? Yeah. There's tons of land around there that he could have easily given them. But he didn't give them because he's killing two birds with one stone, so to speak. Or maybe even 50 million more that I don't know about. The reality is this isn't just about land grab because there's plenty of land out there and God can give it. Now that's the difference too. Because America, Britain, China, whatever, they don't have the rights over any land. They don't have the right to kick people out. They don't have the right to put anybody into it because they're not responsible or authoritative or creators of the land. So that's one big difference between you condemn this, you Christians, but you're okay with this and God. Well, the big difference is God created the land and he created the people. No other nation has that authority. So you need to understand, so that therefore God has the right to do whatever he wants with this land, and most specifically is he's punishing them. This is no different than the flood. This is no different than the ten plagues. This is no different than what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. This is no different than many other events throughout the Bible. Now, I know a lot of people struggle with a lot of those things, but I do think it's interesting that this one tends to be the biggest struggle with a lot of people, but then we're okay with other things. Just be, and I think the big difference is, is God is using people to execute this judgment here, or most of the other times he uses nature. And I think that's where we begin to struggle. How can God use people? Well, because he's God, and he can use anything he wants. This is about their evil. Over and over and over again, he talks about how evil they are, how they've sinned. So this is about punishment. This is about judgment. Within that, we want a God who punishes sin. We don't like it when parents and schools and nations don't punish guilty people. We get mad. We get in arms. We go out in the streets and we protest. And then you turn around and say, how could you, God, punish evil? He's punishing evil. The third thing is this. He's commanding the removal of the Canaanites so they won't corrupt Israel. So they will not corrupt Israel. This 
is the most repeated phrase, repetitive phrase over and over and over again. So that they will not corrupt you. So that they will not corrupt you. So that they will not corrupt you. He doesn't throw resources into this. He doesn't throw land into this. It's mostly about not being corrupted. It's about not being corrupted. And what he's mostly interested in is this shows that he's dealing with sin. And a fourth point is this. He also gave the Canaanites plenty of warnings. Because you have to remember, way back when, in the book of Genesis, he brought a prophet into the land. And that prophet spent many, 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 many years walking up and down the land all the time, talking and sharing with people. And his name was Abraham. And in the same time, there was another guy who was a king and a priest over the Jebusite city, and his name was Melchizedek. And he preached to the people. And at the same time, he gave them warnings to the destruction of the Sodomites and the Gomorrah. And he's given them many other warnings. Because here's what we know. You need to understand that he's not going up to some group of people who don't know who he is and then punishing them for crimes that they did not know were crimes. If you go back into the earliest forms of Canaanite theology, you will find out that they actually worshipped Yahweh. You go all the way back to the earliest writings of the Canaanites, and they worshipped Yahweh as their God. They were completely devoted to him, and he was a monotheistic god to him. Then you keep reading their mythology, and it's interesting that the, they named him El, because El is short for Elohim, and that's the word used of God in Genesis 1.1, and they worshipped him. Over time, Elohim turns into a coward, and then over time he turns into an alcoholic in their mythologies, and then he turns into an easily pushover person that his kids can do anything that they want, and they can easily manipulate him. And what's interesting is you watch the Canaanite mythology progress, evolve. El slowly evolves from an all-powerful, all-loving God who has high standards and morals for his people. And he devolves into a pathetic, untrustworthy, alcoholic, spineless God that can't even control his own people. (coughs) And then the other children come into place and they put themselves forward as gods, and they're all corrupt and immoral. And there's actually a story called the Baal Epic, where El gets dethroned by Baal, and Baal becomes the new god. And I shared that back in Genesis. Here's the reality. What did Satan do first? He destroyed the character of God in the eyes of the Canaanites. He changed God's identity, and then their moral behavior declined. And that's exactly what the serpent does in the garden. He doesn't say, oh, there's no God up there. He says, you can't trust him. He's keeping things from you. That's the first place that Satan goes. He tries to change your identity, and he tries to change your view of God's identity. And once he's done those two things, he doesn't really have to get you to do anything immoral. You're just going to do it. Because you will always become the thing that you worship. And if you're worshiping a lesser version of Yahweh as power and morality, then that will automatically flow out of you. And so we're talking about a people who used to be the Israelites, so to speak. 
They worshipped Yahweh. They knew his rules. They knew his law. They devolved over time. They walked away from him. And he sent them prophets after prophets after prophets after prophets and warnings after warnings until eventually their sin had become so evil that he had to punish them. Does that sound familiar? It's called the First Testament. God took his chosen people and he taught them his laws and then they began to de-evolve and fall away from him. So he sent prophet after prophet after prophet until he sent them into exile. And that's the other thing you need to understand. The last point is this. God doesn't treat them anything differently than what he's going to treat Israel. If you think this is about God playing favorites and eliminating one people group over another, that's called racism or prejudice. Or you think this is about resources and a land grab, that's called colonialism then why does God treat Israel the exact same way that he treated everybody else? Why is he going to kick them out of the land eventually one day? Why is he going to get rid of them? Why is he going to punish them? And that right there should let you know this has nothing to do with favorites. This has nothing to do with political conquests. This has nothing to do with land. This is all about a just and holy God punishing sin. And you might think the punishment of the sin is harsh, but then you've got to stand before God and say that. And the other thing is we don't understand what it's like to truly be a righteous God looking at sin. Now, I know that doesn't wrap it all up in a nice emotional package for you, and I'm not meant to. It should still bother you. And the reality is if it still bothers you, good. That's welcome to having the heart of God because I guarantee you it bothered him. Just like disciplining my children bothers me, but I still do it because I want good children to turn into good adults. And so the reality is these are some points to keep in mind as you think about this extermination of the Canaanites. Now, as we go deeper into Deuteronomy, you're going to find out that they're not allowed to treat anybody else outside the Canaanites like this. That also shows you that this is about a specific group of people for a specific time. Now, you may say, well, that sounds kind of racist. Well, here's the problem. Ethnically speaking, the Canaanites and the Israelites are the same ethnic people. It's kind of hard to be racist against your own race. These are the exact ethnic people as the Israelites. And that's something you must really understand. In fact, there's a lot of evidence going back in Genesis that they literally do come from the same father, the same family. And that's been proven over and over and over again. Does this make sense? Okay, this is what I would challenge you to do. If you have any questions or any thoughts on this issue, I don't want this to become like, hey, those are your points and let's move on. Write them down. Tuck them in your Bible and bring them back when we really dig in. And I'll repeat some of these things, but we'll also go deeper as we look at very specific examples in the book of Joshua. So if anything comes up between now and fall, then write those things down and we'll address those issues.